Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Please note, this episode was recorded prior to the Screen Actors Guild strike. Mmm, is that an adult beverage? Oh my god, this? No, this is just ginger lemon. What's up, everyone? Wherever you are in the world listening, thank you. I'm Evelyn, the creator, producer, and host of this podcast series, Reppin'. I've got a great two-part episode for you. She's an amazingly talented Guyanese-Canadian actress with an incredible body of work that includes Shadowhunters, The Boys, Burden of Truth, My Spy, October Faction, Pillow Talk, Republic of Sarah, and that's just to name a few. And she is a returning guest. Three years ago, she came on this podcast and I absolutely loved getting to know her. I found that she wasn't just immensely talented, but she was someone who was so powerful, positive, aware, and so passionate about making the world better and more inclusive. And since that time, I've come to know her as someone who exemplifies what she holds true. She fights every single day to contribute positively. Now, during her first appearance, she openly discussed the personal hurdles she faced as someone of mixed race her journey of self-identification, the importance of body diversity, and the myriad of challenges entwined with these aspects of her life. Today, she'll share more of her personal experiences, the racism she faced. You'll learn more about the work she's doing to create positive change. You'll see she's just as passionate and just as powerful, but that does come at a cost. She'll also share how she's trying to manage that. So after our first meeting, I knew I had to have her back. And thankfully, she said yes. So step back, because I've got Nicola Karaya Demude. Nicola, I am thrilled to have you back. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. How are you? You look amazing. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back on the show. You look amazing as well. I think the last time we spoke was the very beginning of COVID, and it's crazy. How much has changed and also how much has stayed the same. So it's just a real treat to be back. Oh my God, I am so excited to sit with you. I could seriously hang out with you like all day for like months. <sighs> I have to tell you, a lot of the conversation that we had, both on the show and also offline, it's really stayed with me in so many ways. And one of the things that struck me at the moment when we spoke and has really something that I've tried to live by now is that you said the last time you were on the show, we were talking about you being mixed race and you not auditioning for Mm -hmm. other parts that were minority roles, like indigenous, Asian, which is insane that you were asked to audition for an Asian role. But you said you would not do it so you can allow someone else that is of that race Mm -hmm. to do it. And the thing that's really crazy to me is, A, this industry, as much as we love it, it is hard. It is so hard to get work. And then to be someone who is a person of color 
is even harder. So for me to hear you say that you would actually step back and pass on a project, I mean, that's a livelihood, Nicola. That was incredible to me. And that said so much about you. Can you talk about what your position was on that and how you feel about that now still? Because no one would ever fault you for taking a job so you can eat. And for you to say outright, I'm not going to do it so someone else can do it. That's that says a lot about your character. Thank you. You know, yes and no that people would fault me. I like to think in a positive way that there are now people who would fault me because we understand more now how important this is. I even feel like three years ago when we, almost three years ago when we had this conversation, it was even more of a stance that I was taking than it is now just three years later because I feel like a lot of light has been put on the issues of the erasure of different cultures and different races on the media stage and in film and television. But yes, the reality is we have to be able to make a living. We have to be able to get in the door. We have to be able to do all of these things to just exist in this industry. So I think there's a journey to all of this, right? Like earlier in my career, I took every audition. I played every part. I, in fact, I was often called upon to play various different races that now I wouldn't. And I did because those were the only parts that were even available to me. But as time has gone on and as we're starting to understand more and more the different levels of lack of representation. And what I mean by that is there are certain groups that are making a lot of progress. And I'm hearing a lot of peers of mine, even particularly, obviously, white peers who might be less connected to the personal element of this saying like, but there's so much more diversity than there was before. And they'll use me as as an example. And they'll say, look at your career. 10 years ago, you couldn't get in the room or 10 years ago, you only played nannies. And now you're playing all these great parts. And yes, that is true. And I'm very proud of that. And the door was closed to me for a very long time. But the reality is that this incredible opening of doors that I have seen in my career because of a new sort of interest and expectation that we'll see more um, people who are identified as Latinx or mixed race people on TV, that privilege and that opening door has not been afforded to a lot of my peers in the Asian community, South Asian community, indigenous community. So we're seeing opportunity for certain groups and not others. And that is the path of progress a lot of the time, right? As we take the things happen in steps. But I don't believe that we should settle for those small steps. We need to keep, we need to keep expanding and keep working on this. So one particular moment for me that changed my opinion and changed my action around this was a very dear friend of mine of Indian heritage. I played a role on a TV show where the character was not stated to be, but it was implied that they were of Indian heritage. And I was asked to audition and it was ambiguous. The daughter was a mixed race kid and it was suggested that they were mixed Indian and white and I was cast in the role. And at the time, it was very ambiguous whether my character was meant to actually be Indian or not. Which to me at the time, I thought, well, obviously not, right? Because I come from a family where we have an Indian branch of my family. I clearly don't look like them. But in a culture where a lot of people don't understand the nuances of race and shadeism and all this sort of thing, not everyone is aware of how triggering certain casting choices can be. And I was very proud of the work I did on that show. I really liked that show. I don't feel that anything particularly problematic happened. But I talked to my girlfriend and her interpretation of it had been that my character was meant to be an Indian woman. And she shared with me, she said, I'm going to be really honest with you. And she's a brown woman. She said, when I see women like you playing characters that are supposed to be of my background, 
it's very painful for me. And it makes me feel like I'm not being seen by my culture or they would rather see you as an example of my culture instead of the reality. And I was so grateful to her for having the generosity and the bravery to share that with me because she wasn't trying to put me down. She was like, I loved your work. I love the show, but she knows how important this stuff is to me. So she said, I want to share with you what my experience was. And I sat with that for a long time. And I sat with the idea that me representing her in that context was something that was actively painful for her. It wasn't political. It wasn't personal. It it was a pain that she felt in how her people are being represented and the erasure of women like her that she experiences when she sees women like me stepping into those roles. Now, this is a very complicated issue. And there's arguments to be made on both sides of some of this. But one thing that I realized at that point, I, that was like one of my first jobs on TV, right? So at that point, I hadn't even started asking these questions because I just wanted to get a job. I just wanted to be allowed in the room. Like I just, the fact that I even got this audition was so huge. Yeah. I don't have any regrets about that. But when my career took off a couple of years after that incident, a couple of years later, I suddenly had this very steep upward trajectory very quickly. Yeah. So I went from someone with very few opportunities to someone who was on every show and being cast all the time because this door had opened for women who looked like me, for my, my brand of different was suddenly on the table. <laughs> and all of a sudden I had this power. All of a sudden I had this voice and it made me feel even more like I needed to take a strong stance and take responsibility for what I thought was right. But it's also important to note that the fact that I had options The fact that at that point, my career was at a place where I was in a position to say no financially. I'm very lucky that at this point in my career, if I get an audition that I feel is inappropriate or offensive in any way, I can say no because I have other work. And this is where it gets tricky is had I not taken all these kind of stereotypical jobs when I was younger, perhaps I wouldn't have built this career and this profile that now allows me to be a public person and to be able to have this platform. Right. So I don't regret the decisions that I made in the past, but I am very careful now about the choices I make. And for me, the number one thing is, I will not audition for a role where I believe strongly that people who actually are a part of that community, if I believe they're not being seen for those roles, I will not audition for them. And what I mean by that is, there are certain groups that are not making the headway that my community has to some degree. Look at the South Asian community, the Asian community. We get into shadism, like indigenous community, indigenous communities. Oh my God. Or women, dark skinned, dark skinned, black men and women. Yeah. There's these groups that are not being seen and they're not even being given a shot yet. So when I get an audition to play someone from those communities, those I will not do. Because I believe that me saying no will force casting directors and force producers if more people will do what I'm doing. I know a lot of my friends who are starting to do this and I'm very proud of all of us as a group. We're starting to say, yes, we are people of color, but people of color is not one group. We are not interchangeable. (laughs) And go find find those people, right? I'm proud to be on your roster. I'm proud that you call me and I'm grateful. But go out and find those people And a lot of casting directors are starting to do that. Yeah. But it's a very nuanced issue. I said this last time you and I spoke, 
I'm not by any means saying that I will only play characters of my own ethnic background or my own heritage. No, of course not. I have never even seen a breakdown for a Guyanese Canadian character, not one single time in my entire career. And sometimes when I'm talking about this stuff, people go, oh, so you're saying people should only play their own. Of course, I'm not saying that. I'd be the last person to say that I wouldn't have a career. Have you ever seen a Guyanese Canadian character? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that I will not take a role because I am an easier choice when I know that it's not correct for the character. When I know that the reason I'm being asked to play it or audition for it is because people aren't reaching out and finding those incredible artists in the community who fit that profile much more authentically. Right. And it's a balance. You and I have spoken about this, but recently it happened where also because a lot of the time people go online and they look you up. So casting or producers, and I'm really happy that they're doing this because a lot of producers and a lot of casting directors are really trying to be allies in this with us. Yeah. So they'll go online and they'll see. So what happened to me recently was someone saw online that I was Guyanese Canadian and they assumed that meant that I identify as part Black. So they asked me to audition for a role that was a light-skinned Black woman. Uh And any light-skinned woman listening to this out there is looking at me going, I'm sorry, what? Like, you know, yeah. (laughs) But this stuff happens, right? And I just responded. And it was a director I would have loved to have worked with. But I am not a light-skinned Black woman. Yeah. That is not what I am. There are so many light-skinned Black women in my community who are brilliant who they can access just as easily. For me personally, and this is just my choice, I don't feel like I can judge the choices of others. We're in too much of a precarious position as a community. So I wouldn't presume, Right, I would not presume to judge. But for me personally, I felt like that was a step too far from my comfort zone in terms of what is appropriate for authentic representation in this climate right now. That was my choice in that moment. That's a recent example. First and foremost, let me just say this again and again. I've said this to you privately and I will say this to you again now. I fucking love you. Aw, thank you. (laughs) I think you're fucking amazing. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All of these things are such a testament to your integrity and character. And let me just go back for just a second when you said you might not be in the position now to be able to leverage your your livelihood to step aside, to push others and or allow others to be able to be found and seen so we can make a better world for ourselves in terms of equity mm-hmm. and recognition and validation and all those other things. But I will say this, in terms of the earlier part of your career, at that point, it's not, and I know you're not saying this, but I just want to really be clear, both on the show and also to you, like, you taking those quote unquote stereotypical parts was not something that you obviously by choice was doing. No. That was the structure that we had to break into. We can't necessarily carve a new hole into something that had been rooted for decades and decades. The first version of anything, I don't care if it's a if it's a speech you're writing or a blog you're writing, like first version of anything sucks, right? Because you're just you're just trying to make something out of nothing. And you have to shape it and grow it. So I think you coming in. There's a lot of circumstances that have to be taken into consideration. So I know, again, you're not saying this, but like you had to do what you had to do into a system that was in place to break in and then to make your mark so you can create something new and different. And you are doing that. You are opening the doors for so many people behind you. And I'm just saying this also not as a POC. I'm also just saying this as a woman. It's like the tides have really shifted. I feel like for the most part, we went from women being catty and, you know, that stereotype and idea is still out there. But I think now there's been a real momentum about women building community amongst each other and giving each other a hand up. Yes. And I'll even go one step further. Gender aside, it's just about giving a shit about somebody else and wanting to give somebody a hand up. Yes. I have people in my life who did that for me and people in my life who continue to do that for me in my career who continue to elevate me because they believe that I deserve a voice, that I deserve to be their equal. Exactly. We do have to do that. And when you have power, you have to use that power. That's one of the things that I think we've seen beautiful and horrible examples of in the last few years. Yes. We're at this crazy polarizing time right now where on one hand, we've got all of these advocates and allies and activists doing incredible work. And then on the flip side, it feels like we're going back in time in terms of all of these other sort of abuses of, of power and, and lack of focus on people, yeah. the need for people to support each other. So we're in a very interesting time. I actually have one particular incident that happened during the pandemic that really stuck out with me that I wanted to share with you on this topic, yeah. which is this idea that we also can't go back and judge ourselves for all the decisions that we made before things were starting to change, right? Of course, yeah. It's very easy to look back. And I think for women, 
and people of color in particular, you look back sometimes as an artist and you cringe and you go, oh my God, I can't believe I played by that part. Or, oh my God, I can't believe that I put that up, but, or that I accepted that stereotypical world. But that was the only option we had. Exactly. When you don't have options, we need to survive. And we wouldn't be here now if we hadn't done that. A really interesting experience that I had during COVID was I have a dear friend who I met doing theater when we were coming up in theater together. And when I was in my late 20s, I was working at a classical theater company in Canada. It was one of the biggest companies in the country. At the time, they're doing a lot better now, but at the time, the diversity was not great and the representation wasn't great. Mm -hmm. And I was one of the only people of color in that company. So during, (laughs) this was 10, over 10 years ago now. And during the pandemic, when Black Lives Matter, when the activism was coming out more and more, we're starting to feel this movement. And I feel like a lot of white people too, were starting to go, okay, I want to educate myself. I want to understand. Yes. And so I can be a good ally. Yeah. And I'm so grateful to those people. And I got a, a call from this friend and she said, I've been trying to educate myself and I'm trying to take responsibility. This is a white friend. So I want to apologize to you for something that happened 10 years ago when we were in the dressing room. And she told me the story that she reminded me of this incident that had happened. And you and I might have discussed this before, but it was an incident where it was an all white cast except for me. And it was supposed to have taken place in Britain in 18 something. You know, there's a very particular aesthetic. And after one of the performances, the designer came in to our dressing room and it was me and these two white women. And she said, Nicola, I watched the show tonight. You're looking a little dark from the audience can you buy like some whiter foundation so that you don't look so dark from the audience? And there was this moment where it went really quiet with the other two actors and I just kind of go quiet. And my response was something like, I'm mixed race. I'm going to look dark no matter what makeup you put on me. No, that's just what I look like. Sorry. And she sort of was like, okay, and, and left the room. And I remember this same woman who called me, the same friend who called me 10 years later at the time, there was this pause. And I was so accustomed to these micro, I mean, that's not even a microaggression. That's a macro aggression, in my opinion, but it's a pretty aggressive (laughs) aggression. It's pretty obvious. I was so accustomed as one of the only people of color in this environment to these comments and whatever that I just went back to doing my makeup and obviously it hurts, but you just push through. And then this woman said to me, she was like, are you okay? And I was like, am I okay? I was like, yeah. And she was like, what, wasn't that really racist? (laughs) And even I was like, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I don't know what happens. Like, what? we moved on. And so 10 years later, she calls me and she says, I want to apologize to you for not having said anything in the moment. Oh. As a white woman, I should have said something to that white designer. We should have stood up for you. You were the only one in the room who dealing with that. I should have said something. And I want to apologize to you for that. That's awesome. And I said to her, I was like, oh my God, that is so lovely of you to even think about that and remember that. And thank you for that. I appreciate that. And I said, but I didn't stand up for myself either. I didn't even realize at the time how bad it was because it was so common. Yeah. Our baseline was so low. Exactly. It was just sort of like, okay, it happens. It was like, yeah, you know, I just that happens all the time. So I guess it's not that big a deal. Yeah. And it's just like our bar was so depressingly low. It was a time in my career too where all the messaging was like, you're so lucky to be here because there's so few people of color here. You're so lucky to be a part of this. Yeah. And I drink that Kool-Aid because it's been your whole life and it's been the messaging your entire life. Yes. So all this to say that what I said to her was, I am so grateful to you for even remembering that. But I also reminded her, you did try to take care of me in the moment. 
she had to protect her job too. We were young, we were women. We were women in a company that was 75%, 80% male. I said, you did try to protect me. You reached out. You checked in if I was okay. What more at that point in 2000 and whatever it was? Yes. What more could you really have done? This was pre-Me Too movement. And it's so funny when sometimes young people, particularly when it comes to the Me Too movement, young people say to me now, I just don't know why you guys put up with that. Like, why didn't you just say something? Like, now we just say something. And on one hand, part of me, part of me is, oh my God, this is my dream that you feel that way. Yes. It is my dream that you're like critical of me for not having been strong enough. Like on one hand, I'm like, thank God. They're so far past that, some of them. But the flip side of me just is you don't understand what it was like. How much we've had to do. You don't understand. We lost our jobs. We got fired. For them to have that position now Mm -hmm. is because we had to bear the brunt of that back in the day. Exactly, exactly. And I'm proud of that. And I'm proud for them to go out there and be like, I don't know what's wrong with that. Those 40-year-old women who let people push them around. Fine, think whatever you want because you're where you are because of us. Exactly. So cool, go out there. Make sure this never happens again, you know? I think that a big part of looking back on a career, especially I think for a lot of, and not just in the entertainment industry, for a lot of people of color, we had to take shit. We had to take jobs that we knew were beneath us. We had to take jobs that were questionable yeah. because we had to build a career so we could get to a point where you and I can do this and where we can impact change and we can influence things, right? Yes. But if we hadn't played the game, and I hate that term, but if we hadn't played the game, we wouldn't be where we are now. Yeah. I think the one thing that I've learned is I don't care what business you're in or where you live, in order to survive, to fundamentally and literally live to eat. And this is not a metaphor, like literally to eat. You have to play the game. Yeah. It's how you play the game that makes the difference. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's how you play it and how you navigate it that makes the difference. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying, we stand on the shoulders of the people that preceded us. Oh my God. So many incredible. They took their punches. Worse than we did. Yeah. Worse than we did. But here's my point is when you said that on the show and to me, and anytime that we've talked either online or offline, I think what I meant to say to you in a nutshell is that story of you stepping aside for other people, it reminds me that I'm going to, in any way that I possibly can, to take and leverage my position so I can open doors or body block for somebody so they can have a voice and be heard. I'm not in the same position you are because you're on camera and you have a different sort of set of dynamics that you have to deal with. For me, I'm behind the scenes. So Whatever I could do to propel you forward, either publicly or privately, I'm totally there. So I think when you shared that story with me about what you're doing, it really reminded me like, oh, shit, I want to do that, too. I want to be able to leverage my position both as a profession and also as a person so I can open other doors for other people. And if I'm in a position to, I'm okay to step aside to give someone else that opportunity. So I say thank you for that. I think that's incredible because I think that is an integrity and a principle that far exceeds color and gender. It's about being a fucking good human being that gives a shit about other people and building a community. And you actually exemplify what you're talking about. You set that example for me. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for that. Thank you. That means so much to me. Going further on that train of thought, you are also a counselor now for your union doing a lot of BIPOC work. Tell me about that Yeah, and why that's important. I have always been very vocal 
Not always, but I've been very vocal, particularly since I've been able to embrace this power and have this platform. And I've been trying to make sure that I'm using my platform in a way that I feel has meaning. Yes. I was speaking out a lot on BIPOC issues, LGBTQ plus issues, women's issues, issues of body diversity and representation. And also during COVID, I was speaking out a lot about my concerns with COVID protocols for actors and trying to keep our industry safe. And I was actually reached out to by people pretty high up in my union. And they said, would you like a meeting? Like we're seeing on social media that you have all of these questions and things that you're passionate about. Do you want to meet? I was like, cool. Yeah, I'd love to meet with the president of Actor Toronto. And so Actor Toronto is the Canadian Actors Union, the equivalent to SAG in Canada. Mm -hmm. And so each city has its own branch. And then there's the National Council as well. So basically, I took a meeting with these two people. And the first thing that I realized was how much I didn't know, how uneducated I was in terms of my rights or lack thereof, like depending on the case in terms of how my union worked. I'd never read my union documents cover to cover. Yeah, who does? Who does? It's like, you know, when you buy an iPhone and it's like, you have to click the 28, pages. You're like, you know, 28 yeah. pages of legalese. Like, who's actually reading all of that? So what I thought was really interesting was there were all kinds of things that I learned were out of my union's control, for example, things that we hadn't been able to pass yet. So like the fact that unions, at least I'm not sure how it works in the States, but in Canada, unions are still subject to your provincial labor laws. So there's all kinds of other laws that uh, provincial and federal laws that get in the way of unions being able to act independently or to do certain things. Or right. Anyway, I realized all these things and I thought, wow, there's so much more to be done. I mean, I knew this, but there really is so much more to be done than just speaking out. Yeah. There's a level of action and engagement that is required. And then I got a call from David Gale, the president of Actors Toronto, fabulous, fabulous ally, has been a great supporter of mine. And he got in touch with me and he said, I think you should run for council. I think we need your voice on council. I think we need you, not just for the BIPOC community. And I was glad he said this, like not just for the BIPOC community and not just for LGBTQ plus and women's issues, but also just for my stance on things like pay scale. Yeah. Not just for people of color, which is even worse, but just for Canadians in general. Yes. Because there's all these intersections, right? Right. There's all these intersections of opportunity and lack of opportunity. So I ran for council and I ended up getting a seat both on the Toronto Actor Council and on the National Council, which is great. And I started working with the diversity committee at ACTRA more. And also, most importantly, like having a voice in the room. This is the most diverse council we've ever had on the ACTRA Toronto Council. And it's been really great. That's great. It's been interesting, too, because one of the things that's so frustrating about the world (laughs) is how often laws, bureaucracy, things that are entrenched parts of our cultures that we need in some areas are getting in the way of progress in a lot of other areas. It's not just as simple as us wanting to make change, right? There's all kinds of systemic issues that get in the way of that change being made, right? Yeah. So it's been a really interesting journey for me. This is the first time that I've been engaged actively in an organized, like I've always done my own activism. I've been parts of other activist groups, but this is the first time that I've been active in a more legal and bureaucratic structure, but also um, uh, a bureaucratic mindset that you have to learn to understand why these things are so wrong. Mm. I had to learn a lot about, oh, so there are channels, there are ways to do this, but they're complicated and they take time. Right. And my frustrations on one hand have gotten much greater since I've engaged on a higher level because you start to go like, oh my God, there's just roadblocks everywhere. Yeah. You guys are seeing this in the States as well. You look at what happened with Roe v. Wade and like, how could that have happened? Well, it could happen because of this governmental allowance and because of this. Right. Like there's all of these different, I mean, I'm not going to speak to American politics, 
So there's all of these structures and systemic issues that are getting in the way. Yeah. And there have been many moments where I've been like, oh, was I actually making more change when I was just out there on Instagram talking about stuff? And the reality is not necessarily both can be true. Like I think I can make an impact both ways. And being a union counselor doesn't, there's no NDAs. It's not like I'm not allowed to say what I want to say. But what it has done is it has given me a platform at a higher level to speak to the people that I want to be speaking to. Mm-hmm. A lot of producers don't follow me on Instagram, but they will be in the room when we're in talks about things like right now in Canada, we filed a human rights grievance. Yeah, It's called the hair and makeup grievance, trying to get producers to agree to put in our union agreement that you have to have hair and makeup artists who can do diverse hair and makeup. And, and normally I'd be talking about this on Instagram. And now I get to talk about it on Instagram, but I also get to sit in front of the producers and say, this is why this is so important. Yeah. It's been a very complicated experience. I'm proud of the work that I'm doing, but it's also made me realize how far we have to go even more than I realized before. Yeah. The other thing, and you and I talked about this a little one-on-one, but one thing that has also been very interesting for me is being on a council where there are a number of other BIPOC counselors who are experiencing much greater discrimination than I am at this point in time. I said, when there became this huge interest in Latinx characters because of the demographics and because of an American started saying, we need this. So Canada had to go find actors like me and, and it just started hiring us because it became a requirement. And there's certain groups, like I said earlier, that have been given more opportunity than others. And also as a mixed race person and a fairly like in my culture, I'm considered white, right? <laughs> and then you come into the Western world and suddenly I'm brown and I'm a person of color. Right? So it's like, yeah, for me to sit in front of a bunch of my peers who are Southeast Asian, Black, Indigenous, who still have all these doors closed to them. Yeah. And to be speaking on their behalf is something that I really struggle with my comfort level with that because I feel like, what do I have to represent you when you are experiencing this discrimination on a level that I never did? I mean, I experienced racism and discrimination, but not on the level that they've had to because their demographics have been so excluded. Yeah. What I found really helpful in that area was to sit down with them. Like we had a meeting, just those of us in the BIPOC community on the council. And I said to them, I want to acknowledge this concern that I have. And I wanted to make sure that they felt comfortable with me speaking for us when it was my time to speak for us and that they were comfortable with me holding that position. Yeah. I also just wanted them to know that I am aware that my position is different. Yes. And I'm aware that our circumstances are different because again, we can't treat us all as one big group. No. POC people are not one big block of people. I don't know why that's so difficult for people to understand. Just to your point, like when you see someone go, oh, but there's four people of color on that show. And you're like, yeah, but one's Asian, one's black. And do you even know what, do you even know whether it's Chinese or Japanese or Vietnamese? No, no. One South Asian person. That four is not four of the same person. You know what I mean? There are so many people who might be fighting the fight that you are, but are not quite as aware that you're struggling with your position because you're thinking about other people and you're aware of the nuances and that you're aware that we're not a monolith. You sort of take it all on with such a great ferocity. But I worry about you being so frustrated by A, the different roadblocks that you're hitting. And two, I worry about that added sort of level and dynamic that you have to 
wrestle with while you're trying to open doors for the BIPOC community, but also struggling with your comfort level, realizing that you don't speak for everybody. But I will also say that what you're talking about also ties back to what we were talking about at the start of this conversation, which is, this is the situation that we're in right now. And it's the like the optics of society, they all group us into one giant thing, right? This is not a system that we built. This is a system that we're trying to change. So much like the start of your career, we just have to make do with what exists to say that the system in terms of the legal system, in terms of systems everywhere across the board in every genre, it needs to be like a kitchen. It needs to be a complete gut job because it's so systemically problematic mm -hmm. and archaic. And in order to do this, you have to rip literally everything out. We have to just get in there first mm -hmm. and then start ripping shit out little bit by little. Yeah. We can't just go in and shove a kitchen in there. No, you're absolutely right. I also don't think that it's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing to be angry. I don't think it's a bad thing to be conflicted. I think that anyone who cares, anyone who feels deeply is going to live in conflict. And people like us are going to live in conflict because we don't accept the status quo. We won't accept it. Recently, I was having dinner with some family members and one of them was like, essentially was like, can't we just talk about nice things at dinner? Like this idea that I always go political, that I'm always talking political. And part of me is like, yeah, you're right. We need to take a break from the things that we're fired up about and just talk about the weather or TV or whatever. Although TV is not unpolitical these days. But I actually think that I will fight and I will continue to live in this struggle as long as I believe that people are not being treated fairly. And I think that that conflict that I feel is also a beautiful thing. I'll give you an example. I parted ways with the theater community. I started out the first 10 years as my career in theater. And I loved theater. And it's what I wanted to do. That was originally what I wanted to do. More than TV and film, I wanted to work in the theater. I loved it so much. But theater in Canada, when I started out, was like, made film and TV look like a BIPOC-friendly wonderland. It was so bad. Theater in Canada was just really problematic. There were obviously some companies doing incredible work, but generally speaking, it wasn't great. As I've shared a few of those experiences with you. And then again, point of privilege, my career took off in film and TV. And all of a sudden, I didn't need theater anymore to pay the bills. In fact, the bills were being paid by film and TV. And I was doing theater as more of a passion, right? Because I loved it. And what that meant that was so interesting was that I no longer needed it to pay my bills. So suddenly I had this freedom to just really say what I was thinking and say what I was feeling. And I love that word you put, what did you say? Throw your body in front of like body block, to body block for young people. A couple of times that happened, there was one incident where I was working with a young woman. She was the only black actress in the cast. She was the youngest member. She was the only black person. There were only two of us people of color in the whole cast. So she was having a terrible time. It was just awful. And the director was very problematic in terms of the way that he was dealing with her and like things that were being said that were in terms of racism. It was really problematic. And I could see how much pain she was in. I could see her struggling. I could feel myself, like me sitting outside the dumpster at my first theater job crying, just trying to get through the day. 
and in that case, it was more sexual harassment than race related. Oh God. Where you're just like, you felt like that, you felt like that was your job because you were told that you just had to power through. This was how you paid your dues. And I saw her struggling. And so I invited her into my dressing room one day and I said, how are you? And she started to cry and she was like, this is my first job. I can't say anything. And she said, she was absolutely right. It's a small community. I'll get blacklisted. And I was like, here's what we'll do. And I was like, you tell me what is most important to you, what you're experiencing. Here's the things I've seen that I have a problem with. And you tell me what's bothering. And I will go to the union and I will report it on my own behalf. And I will say that it is me that has a problem with this and they can come to me and we'll leave you out of it. I will go to them and say, I have a problem with it. And she was like, oh, but what if you, and I was like, pardon my French, but I literally was like, I don't fucking care if I never work for this company again, because I don't like what I'm seeing. So I don't give a shit. Right. And at that point, the creative work was suffering because of the racism. Right. So what do I, what, I want to work here again? No, I don't want to work here again. But I also said to her, this is your choice. If you want me to do this, but if you don't want to end up in the middle of something at this, that's up to you because I also can't take your power away from you. So if you want me to do it, I'll do it. I'll put it on me. In the end, I think she decided that she didn't want me to file a grievance. But what I did was I spoke out with the board about it and I did other things. The body block, right? But the only reason I could do the body block for her was because I'd gotten to a place in my career where I didn't need them anymore. Exactly. Well, I'm going to use that now. There are people who body blocked for me yeah. back in the day. I remember one of, one of the most famous actresses, actors in Canadian history, a woman named Martha Henry, who unfortunately passed away recently. So she was like the biggest ticket draw at a company I was working for. And she saw the sexual harassment that I was encountering when I was like 25. And she threatened to quit if it didn't stop. Right. And they needed her because she brought in the audiences. And so she got it fixed. Right. But she couldn't have done that when she was 24, right? Exactly. It's this legacy. But again, you also have to acknowledge that there are certain hits you have to take to get to a place where you can do the body blocking. Exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. I also think that to your point about those of us who feel so deeply and the pain that it causes us, we should be concerned about ourselves. Yeah, I'm just worried about your care. And I do have to be aware of that, particularly with the union work where it can be very upsetting and very draining. You do have to practice self-care. We have to make sure that you're finding balance in your life. Yes. On the other hand, whenever I strike a blow that I feel is helping another young person or another person who doesn't have the power that I have, the fucking joy and pride and excitement that I feel in being able to do that and the sort of sense of hope that it gives me that is a beautiful thing. And you can't have that feeling if you don't fight the good fight. Right. You can't. So you have to practice self-care. You have to make sure you're protecting yourself. But it's also okay to live in those uncomfortable spaces as long as you're making the change you want to make. Again, our conversation, both privately and publicly, you have reminded me that I can do that and I will do that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I might take some blows that might affect my career or whatever, my standing or reputation. But you know what? I'm doing okay too. So I'm willing to do that. And until we all do that for each other, we're not going to get anything done. You actually walk the walk. And I think that is so important to me. I think a lot of times people believe that they hold these ideals, but don't actually practice them. Mm-hmm. And you care so deeply, Nicola. And that's why I'm like a little bit worried about your own sort of well-being. But I know that you are taking steps and you are at least aware of that. But I'm still going to get on your ass about that. 
But no, and yeah. I appreciate that. And we do need to do that for each other. It's funny, I was in an airport. I was with my best girlfriend, who's a white woman, and we were in the lineup at Customs in Germany this summer. We were going through um, duty-free. And the woman in the checkout line, you have to give them your passport. And she was like, oh, you're from Canada. And I said, yeah. And she was like, oh. And she made a very questionable comment about the like trucker nonsense that was happening. And basically the comments, the racial undertones were maybe there, maybe not, but it was a very problematic statement that this... What was the trucker comments? The trucker convoy. Did you guys have oh, that in the States halted. too? Yeah, the anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers. Yes. Anyway, she made this comment that was very problematic. And I just was like, okay, well, I'll take my receipt. Thank you. And I left. And my girlfriend said, what did she say? Because she hadn't heard her. And I told her and she was like, why didn't you tell her? Why didn't you say this? And why didn't you explain that like, that it's putting people at risk? And I said, I can't do that today. Like, I didn't want to do that with her. Yeah. And then there was sort of a silence. Then my friend said, it must be really exhausting for you to always be having to engage in these conversations. And it must be exhausting to constantly have to educate people on these things. And she was like, you probably just don't want to do it sometimes. Yeah. And I was so grateful to her for seeing that. And if she's a true ally for wanting to understand that. And I said to her, I was like, I fight this fight all the time, every day. This woman at duty free in this foreign country there's nothing I'm going to say to her that's going to change her mind. Yes. All it's going to do is take my energy. And it's not even worth it. No, it's not worth it. All it's going to do is take my energy. It's not going to change her mind. But when a colleague says it or a family member says it mm -hmm. or someone that I'm faced with in a professional context or out in the world, if I see someone being harmed, then I'm going to jump in and I'm going to speak because it's worth it. But we have to also remind ourselves in terms of self-care as activists, we have to remind ourselves that we also can't heal all the people in all the world's problems. Yeah. We only have so much emotional and mental bandwidth that we can offer. Choose your battles. Choose our battles. And also my passion and my beliefs and my fight and the fire that I have for the things that are important to me. Not everyone deserves that. That's a gift that we give each other. It is a gift that we give each other when we share our hope and when we share our resources and our education and our beliefs. That's a gift. Yeah. And not everyone deserves that gift from you because it'll be wasted on them. And I won't waste my gifts. I'm not doing that. Yeah, it's a fine line. And we all have to find out yeah. what our own line is. I'm just glad that you're aware of that, but I'm still going to check in with you and be like, are you taking care of yourself? I much appreciate that. You have been working in the business diligently for many years and you're so fucking great at what you're doing. But let's talk about you being number one on a comedy series. Now, a lot of people <laughs> who are not in the business, they don't understand what number one is. So really quickly, put that in context. Tell me the story and why this is such a significant thing to you. But let people know what number one on the call sheet means, because not everybody knows. Yeah. First of all, the call sheet is the sheet that gets sent out every day with the list of actors who are going to be working that day, the list of crews can be working that day. And for the purposes of production, actors are assigned a number. Right. Ostensibly, that number is meant to represent the size of the role, right? So number one on the call sheet is the lead. Number two is perhaps the other gender lead or a secondary lead. Number three is supporting lead number four, supporting lead, and so on down the line. When a show's on for a really long time, you can end up like being number 
500, 700, 1,000 and something technically. Now, there are times when numbers are used, I call them vanity numbers, right? So sometimes on call sheets, they're based on the size of role. But then there's other times where you'll do a movie and some really massive celebrity will agree to do like two scenes in the movie and they'll end up being put as number two or three, even though they're only in five minutes of the movie. Because I think this is my understanding of it. You probably, Evelyn, would know more than me as a producer. But to me, that's a sign of respect because a lot of times the reason that big actor is on that show or in that movie is because they've taken a pay cut to support that film. Yes. And I've met amazing actors who do that. Amazing actors who go, I'm going to take half the salary I normally take because I think this is a good project and it'll bump you up. So that's fine. The number is meant to distinguish the size of the roles. Yes. Yes. The importance of character. Yeah. A lot of people spend their whole careers never being number one on something, especially if it's a a non-indie production, like if it's a network production or or a studio film. And generally in my career, I spent the first bunch of years being number 402, number 310. Every once in a while, I'd get a strong 54, or I think I was like 22 on Shadowhunters. I think on Shadowhunters, I started out as 54, and then my part got bigger and I made my way down to 22. It wasn't until my career really took off that I started solidly playing in the like number eight to 20 kind of area, right? I think I was six once and that that was a big deal. Being number six was a big deal on a TV show. But I was generally playing in that sort of eight to 20, which is great. For someone who was told that they would never have a career, it was a massive thing. Yeah. There's a show called Pillow Talk that my husband and I play husband and wife on, but it's all fictional. It's completely fictional. It's completely scripted. But because of COVID and also just conceptually, they decided to have real couples play these fictional couples because they thought it would make like an interesting dynamic. It's a show that's on Crave in Canada. It's not out in the States yet, I don't think. But we auditioned and to be perfectly fair, I want to say that it's very much an ensemble show. There's four couples, I think, on the first season. And everyone, in my opinion, is of equal importance. Right. An ensemble show means there's no one lead. It means that everybody is, and there's a lot that, yeah, it's, it's like a group of people. Exactly. It's a company. And when the call sheet came out for my first rehearsal day, I opened it up. And I'm not someone who gives a shit about that stuff. So I didn't ask what my number was. I've never in my entire career asked that question. <laughs> and I opened the email with the call sheet and I'm number one on the show. Whether that is about my social media status, whether that's about my career history, whether that's about how they see the characters on the show, I don't know. And I'll never ask because I don't care. But as a size 10 mixed race BIPOC woman living in Canada, who was told I would never have any career because of those things, much less the career I've had to look at the call sheet and see number one, one, Nicola Cry Demude on a big TV show. Like we're not talking about an indie show, like a Canadian network TV show. Yeah. It was a kind of pride. And my husband was number two, a Latino man. You've got this mixed race woman, this Latino guy playing one and two. Yeah. It's a big show. And it was so moving to me also because I was 40 when I started shooting that show. Right. So not only am I a diverse body type, make me barf, a size 10 mixed race BIPOC woman. I'm also 40. I'm 41 now when I did season yeah. two. And your career was supposed to be over long before that when I was coming up. 30. Exactly, 30. I used to say 30 was it. So I had this real moment of looking at my computer, looking at this piece of paper, piece of paper, I'm, that's how you know I'm 41, but this image on my screen. <laughs> Number one, Nicola Cry Demude. And I just, 
I'm going to get all emotional about it now, but I just thought if myself at 24, when I was taking all this shit about all the things that weren't right about me for the thing that I love to do so much, I just wanted to go back to her. And in a way I did go back to her and go, look what you did. Look where you are. Look where you got. And it heals. I get, I've got the like goosebumps. It's not that you can't heal without that because a lot of people just don't have the opportunity. No, I know that. But that's a tangible moment. Oh my God. It was a moment in my life of just stopping and going, this is it. This is what I was told I didn't have a right to dream of. And I did it anyway. And I dreamt of it anyway. And I kept going. And now it's here. And for my husband as well, like for both of us, and we've been through this journey together over the last 12, 13 years of watching each other grow and him being allowed to stop playing gangbangers and start playing doctors and dads and me going from not playing maids and nannies and playing professionals and leads. And so it was a real moment for him and I of taking each other's hands and going like, it's here, like we did it. And it means so much. And the only thing that I will say that can be really good. There's many things, but one of the things that's so good about not having been allowed to believe in yourself at times in your life or being told that there were things that were just out of your reach is that when you get them, it is so unbelievably beautiful and empowering. And there's a lot of actors I know who came up being told that these things would happen for them particularly white actors who fit the mold when we were coming up when we were young and they were always told, yeah, you're good and you're beautiful and you're white and you're thin and you'll get all these things because, and they were good at their jobs, you'll do it. Yeah. And it didn't mean as much to them. And I feel sad for them sometimes, especially when it goes away, that I don't know that they'll ever be able to feel the appreciation and the achievement of that the way that those of us do in the POC community because you were told that you were not allowed to be in that room or to be on that piece of paper. And then when you are, it's a feeling like no other. It's a feeling of progress and hope and joy and just a real sense of healing, I think, that was really profound for me. You are such a magnanimous, thoughtful human being. I am not as magnanimous. I'm going to say that they're going to be fine. I don't worry about that. <laughs> they've, been, they've been given opportunities. No, I know, I I'm don't. just playing. I'm just playing. No, but you're, but you're right. You're right. Yeah, I'm not going to be as magnanimous as you are. I'm like, they're fine. They've been fine. They've been good. You just pointed out something that I want to start doing more of, which is because someone else said this to me recently. I have a habit and this probably comes from what I went through and what you people like you and I've been through. Someone said to me recently, you don't have to qualify your achievements. Yes. They're like, white people and men don't do that. Just own it, girl. They don't go like, well, I achieved this, that I had all this help, right? For the most part, I shouldn't make generalizations like white people and men, but it's just culturally, it's not something that, whereas we feel like we have to do that. Yeah. And it's true. I need to stop qualifying. I need to stop qualifying my achievements. They're my achievements. I think there's two prongs there. I think it's one being a woman. I feel like as women as and again, this is all generalizing. But as women, I think that we feel like we need to master something before we can even introduce the idea. Yes. Whereas a lot of the other, let's say men, they just they don't know what the fuck they're doing. And they just go ahead and do it anyway with the fullest of confidences. And I think on top of that, we do have the POC dynamics we've been indoctrinated into a society that we've had to fight. I'm not even going to say twice as hard. I'm going to say 10 times harder than we had to. So both as a woman, as a person of color, I mean, the list goes on and on. And that's why there's a podcast like this, right? But I do want to say this, going back 
and to personalize this moment for you. Mm. You know, you're talking about this now and you're still getting emotional. So when, when you take yourself back and you know what you have gone through in your 20s mm-hmm. and all the hits that you had to take when no one necessarily knew how to stand up for you or it wasn't appropriate to stand up for you and just all the stuff that you've gone through, not just as a person of color, but also as a woman, there's a lot of sexual misconduct and it's just all such a shit we have to deal with. Not even that's exclusive in the entertainment industry. And now you have this moment where you look at the computer and it is a tangible marker that this is possible and this is you. How do you take that moment now and where does that sit in your life now and how does that sort of propel you forward? Oh, that's such a good question. Gotta hit pause here. Check back on part two, which is coming up next and find out how Nicola answers this question. Our conversation goes even deeper, so don't miss it. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did, I'd love your support for this series. Please share, subscribe, download, and leave a review. Reppin is about having conversations and building a community of people where we can come together. So join me and share it. Don't forget to swing on by to my YouTube page and see the extra content that's available there. And look, I always love hearing from you. So message me on my Instagram page at Reppin underscore podcast. Thank you always to my hit squad, Nelson Pinero and Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Don't forget the conclusion with Nicola. It's coming up next. Thank you again so much for being here. I'll see you on the next one. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey, I'm Jillian Clare, the host of the podcast, Thanks for Coming In. I've accumulated some pretty crazy audition stories over the past 20 years, and so have my friends. And I was like, you know what? No, not going to do this. And then Disney calls and is like, we need you to come test for the Ant-Man movies. I didn't know if my scene was going to get cut or not. Ooh, I could play that. Tune in every Thursday to hear your favorite actors tell the funniest, saddest, and most cringeworthy audition stories. Sometimes even the one that got away. Thanks for Coming In is available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.